Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Today, all about the mid-range and this idea that analytics are wrong. You need the mid-range. The analytics on the mid-range are not successful. Killing basketball. All of these kinds of hot-button issues that have really popped up recently. So I want to start right out of the gate with a David West tweet. David West, the player, Indiana, San Antonio, New Orleans, very successful career. And here's what the tweet said. Stop letting nerds tell you how to play basketball. David West, stop letting nerds tell you how to play basketball. Let's, for the sake of for the sake of the conversation, let's leave aside the use of the word nerds here, and I'll just cut to the spirit of what I think he's really saying. Now, of course, from his perspective, he's really saying, I don't want to hear it, and we'll get to that in a second. From his perspective, he's making a pretty large statement about rejecting the analytics movement. But before we get to that, from my perspective, is really stop letting strategic people tell you how to implement strategy. In other words, most of what he's referring to is strategic. So this is on the heels of the Rockets being eliminated and the idea that the mid-range game is still extremely important and vibrant. And this, this advice, if you will, to value threes and layups and free throws is somehow misguided because it's coming from these quote-unquote nerds. So, again, what I see there is really the idea that these are strategies, these are game-level strategies. Is it better to take long twos or threes? That's a game-level strategy. That's premeditated. You step back and you look at that and you say, hey, all of these shots that were long twos were bleeding value by not stepping back behind the three-point line. That's a strategy. And the people who have been responsible for moving in these directions over the years are strategic people. It could be a player. It could be a coach. It could be a guy employed just to look at this kind of stuff. But, I mean, teams are using the same kind of information strategies to sign free agents, to put together uh, trades, to draft players, and on and on and on. It's just strategic components exist in a game of strategy. They exist in a competitive game where you're trying to look at the rules and win. And one of the key rules is three-point shooting, just like one of the key rules is free throws. Don't get in foul trouble. That's not a good idea. It's probably not a good idea to take players out when they have a foul because you're worried that they'll get into foul trouble and won't be able to play minutes. And I've argued for a very long time, it's not a good idea to take players out with two fouls in general. And it's not a very good idea to take players out with three fouls in general. And it's probably not a good idea to take players with four fouls out of the game in general. The exceptions have to do with 
if they play extremely differently or if they're prone to foul trouble uh, and you, for some reason, you need them in different lineups later on in the game, then it makes a little more sense to balance. But the general rule of thumb, which when I was growing up for a very, very long time, was if you have two fouls in the first quarter, you're out. It's basically your quarter plus one. So if you're in the first quarter, you take the first quarter, you add one, two fouls, you got to rest. If you're in the second quarter, you get three fouls, we have trouble, you got to rest. If you're in the third quarter, you have four fouls, maybe late in the third, you could pick up your fifth. But that's just not strategically sound. And so whether you are the greatest basketball player in the history of the game or uh, a diminutive, uh, you know, four foot nine, um, a lady from Thailand, anybody can come up with this, right? It has nothing to do with your skill as a basketball player. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling bad. It wasn't a knock uh, on Thailand or four foot nine ladies at all. Um, I'm just saying this, this idea can come from anyone. It can come from anywhere. It doesn't change the validity of the idea. You're not implementing a physically difficult task. You're just prescribing strategy. And this has actually been going on for a very long time in the history of the game. So the two foul rule in the first quarter is an example, but corner threes. I mean, I, I think the Spurs were really the first team to exploit the idea that the corner three is closer. In theory, that makes it an easier shot. There's also accessibility points to the corner three in terms of spacing and just slotting guys down there. And so, okay, strategically, we want to take advantage of that spot on the quarter uh, on the court as a high-value spot. That's strategy. That's all that is. And and over the history of the game, this has been something that has taken hold at every step, at every single step. If you haven't seen my video on YouTube on stat uh, comparing stats across eras, I get into the history of a lot of the rule changes over these periods. And back in the 60s, when they were playing very quickly, there were a lot of inefficient shots. There were a lot of sweeping hooks and sort of strange things of this nature that look ridiculous to us now, but they were a relic of George Mikan's dominance of the days when Goliath absolutely ruled the game before they uh, widened the paint for Wilt Chamberlain and you could just park down there when the positions actually meant something. They came from, you know, they were borrowed from other sports like soccer where you had a forward who literally went forward you had a guard who was sort of analogous to a defenseman in hockey or soccer, lagging backwards because they are a line of defense. I mean, this led to all sorts of different stuff that evolved over the years. Shooting three, shooting more three-pointers is an example of that. It's just the most recent example. There were strategic decisions that were made to exploit the illegal defense rules once they came into play in the early 80s. And again, it doesn't matter where that comes from. Of course, the NBA has historically been a league that has sort of a legacy uh, jock club, a boys club, guys who used to play then become the coaches and so on and so forth. So perhaps from the player's standpoint, although I doubt these players know this history, from the player's standpoint, this is new in that it's coming from someone who hasn't demonstrated their chops 
as a basketball player. And that feels invasive. That feels like it's coming from the outside. And, and part of how that feels is fundamentally wrong. You know, if you're a player and you're an incredible physical specimen and you're 6'8 and chiseled and athletic and you've been practicing this craft for years and you're better at basketball than most people in the world will be at anything that they do because the, t- the talent pool is, I mean, this is wild when you think about how good these guys are. Millions of people are trying this. And so from their perspective, it's extremely off-putting. Okay, now uh, the legendary Kirk Goldsberry, formerly of the Spurs, ESPN, author of Sprawl Ball. I'm sure so many of you have read it already. I don't even have a copy yet. He tweeted, and I'll quote here, The real problem is that some of the brightest and biggest names in our sport try to marginalize analytics, reasoning by reducing it to a caricature. That's true. When you watch Inside the NBA on TNT, the number of backhanded comments toward quote-unquote analytics is pretty large. Now, I had a question on Twitter that was a follow-up to this from at Tactical Fouling, and I'll just I'll, I'll read what he wrote because it's going to segue into the point here. He, he responded to Kirk by saying, it's a problem fueled by most fans and clickbait media companies creating the caricature in the first place. Quote, the incorrect use of statistics is more widespread than the correct use. Plenty of basketball accounts I follow, even otherwise good ones, often misuse box score numbers and small sample stats. Ben, what are your thoughts on this? I completely agree with that. I think he's dead on in the idea that a lot of really knowledgeable basketball people sometimes or frequently misuse statistics. They use information in a way, and and, and there's sort of a specific folly that I want to characterize. It's really being dogmatic about something or, or putting a tremendous amount of meaning, like an actual prescriptive diagnostic meaning on a piece of data that doesn't say that. So as an example, if an if a team wins a game by 20 points, you can't say that they're 20 points per game better than the league. You can say as a matter of fact that they've won their one game by 20 points and that's been their performance, but that is in no way predictive of what's going to happen in the future and we know from the past that it's not a very good descriptor of their quality. And you can say the same thing about the 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 area I see it a lot these days is on-off numbers or some kind of efficiency with a player on versus a player off. And this is fantastic that we have this now entering the common vocabulary. When I watch local broadcasts on NBA League Pass, it's amazing to hear some commentators just casually using analytics. I mean, even Marv Albert on TNT has casually dropped offensive ratings and defensive ratings of teams. And this is this is such a step forward from where we were 10 years ago. And it's taken a long time to get here. But here we are, and these bumps are, they're just part of the journey. Because when you get access to this information, it, it, it requires more education. There's no way around it. We all have to go through it. In, in my introductory statistics course, 
at UCLA, I did not do well. The beginning of that course was bumpy. So it's just it's just part of the process. I'm very sympathetic to it. I think the challenge is trying to continue the discussion and the education around those topics without sounding like you're being overly critical or jumping down people's throats. And Twitter doesn't help. There's a lot of positives to Twitter that I enjoy and the way it works about connecting information. But there's also failures in terms of trying to get any nuance in that information. And so when people repeatedly use a statistic in a way that sounds diagnostic or dogmatic or just overly prescriptive of something, and it doesn't say that, the conversation often gets very sticky. And of course, those conversations are tangents. They're not part of the main dialogue. So when someone like David West or Charles Barkley or Stephen A. Smith, or I don't know, I don't know who, but you know, pick your major voice in the room. When they say something that's negative about analytics and they character they they create this character of it, it it's really straw manning. That's what they're doing. They're they're finding examples that, and this is how the mind works. They're finding examples that actually exist. And they're grabbing it and they're saying, this is ridiculous. Why are people doing this? So the whole idea of no mid-range is a great example. No mid-range is not the answer. The, the answer is that you have a learning or an insight that threes are way, way better than long twos. And so you'll always have essentially a horizon or some, maybe it's an event horizon. I don't know enough about the etymology of that word, but you'll have some kind of horizon, some kind of cliff where next to the three point line, your shots just drop off in value because going from 23 feet to 24 feet is only a slight drop in percentage, but a 50% gain in points. And it doesn't matter where you draw the line. Anytime you introduce extra scoring into the game or any game, it's going to impact the strategy. And that's the learning. The line could be eight feet away. It could be 29 feet away. You'll have the exact same phenomenon. And so what that means is you essentially want to avoid long twos at all costs. You do want to avoid them at all costs. They're just not priced well. So when you watch a detail episode with Kobe Bryant and he tells Jason Tatum to, instead of fading behind the three-point line, get in the little pocket 20 to 22 feet from the rim, that is strategically horrendous advice. The basic math of the game tells you never shoot long twos. Just avoid them at all costs. But as you start to get closer, and the value of your shot is not about an alternative choice. That's what's key here. If you're at 21 feet, it's really realistic to get to 24 feet. If you're at 17 feet, if you start to live in the pinch post that area near the elbows, outside the free throw line extended, Dirk Nowitzki, Paul Pierce, a lot of Kobe, second three-peat Jordan, all of these players, Kevin Durant now is a great example. Then, now you're talking about shots that you're setting up at 14, 16, 17 feet. It's not realistic to get behind the three-point line. And so 
the value of those shots must be weighed against the alternatives in the possession. And when you're in a half-court possession, you can't get a great wide-open look, and you got a guy that can make 45, 49, 52% of his mid-range jumpers against most coverages, that actually becomes a really good value as a possession winds down. You'll hear me say this sometimes in my breakdowns on players when they have a mid-range game and it's isolation and it's a slog, it actually becomes really helpful as an outlet valve for your team's offense. You wouldn't want to start the offense that way in most cases unless you're a great passer and all that stuff and then you can build around it. But the idea that analytics tells you not to shoot between three feet and 24 feet is simply a straw man. That's not correct. I think the question becomes, why do why does someone do this? Why would David West tweet this? Or why are Barkley and so many people, players as well, Durant himself with his blog boys comment last year, why create this straw man to knock it down? And it's just a classic argumentation strategy, especially in a public forum. Basically, if you are familiar with the idea of a meme, not the not the image passed around on the internet, but the original use of the word, like a genetic piece of information that is socially shared, memes are passed around this way and knocked down and destroyed. Ideas, essentially, are knocked down and destroyed this way. So, essentially, and you see it a lot in politics, but when you see an actual threat to something that you hold dear. Maybe you love mid-range jumpers. Maybe you don't like being told what to do by coaches. Maybe you don't like being told what to do by players who aren't very good at basketball. That's understandable. So you take this and you see it as a threat. You want to get rid of it. You create the straw man because you aren't interested in the validity of the thing. You aren't interested in saying, okay, this thing has some flaws, but You know, how can I address this earnestly? You're just trying to destroy it. And so you create the concept of analytics or you go after the concept of analytics, which is itself sort of a a bucketing term, and and you knock it down. And it's a movement. It's a large movement. It's led to this idea that the Houston Rockets style doesn't work. And I'll get to that in a second. But I want to finish up this conversation on David West and and analytics. The word analytics, the term analytics, yes, it, it, is a, it is a word that, much like anything complicated in language, it simplifies a concept. Because what analytics as a concept really means to a lot of us, and certainly those who use it, and myself, is just the idea that you're using data intelligently. It just means smarter data. That's all it means. But as a buzzword it can mean something else. Uh, and, and yes, it kind of does require a buzzword because in businesses, businesses are extremely risk averse. And, and they need sort of sexy concepts to start to even pretend to be on board with things. So analytics is an example of this. The history of analytics as a term, as far as I've been able to trace, really goes back to business intelligence and businesses using this word to describe a data-driven strategy as things became more automated in you know, the 80s and 90s and computing took over. But really, the, the spirit of the field 
from a math and science standpoint, has always just been statistics or quantitative analysis, or now because we've got so much data, data science. And my background in stats is from social science. Because in the sciences, in any science, when you're trying to understand something, you just need to measure stuff and then figure out what the heck it is you're measuring. And so when we talk about basketball numbers and data and stats, that's all we really mean. These are measurements. Do we understand what we're measuring? And the, and the analytics part, that, that buzzword, that history of business, because basketball is a business, it is a competitively, competitively strategic game. The analytics part is how can you strategize that and, and put it into some actionable form? How can I use this information on or off the court to make my team better? So when I read a tweet like David West's tweet, to me that just translates to stop using information to inform your strategy. Stop letting people who specialize in using information strategically make strategic decisions. In basketball, when you create that straw man for analytics, all you're really saying is don't use stuff beyond points, rebounds, assists, and maybe field goal percentage. Don't use stats beyond wins and losses. That's analytics, and analytics lead you astray. And really, really trust your eyes. And if you're a high-level player, you're privy to information. You're part of a club that no one else can access. And that's technically true, by the way. There's a lot of expertise and inside information that every NBA player has that even a lot of Division I basketball players have. And that information isn't always incorporated into everything perfectly. It's, it's dirty. It's murky. It's a challenge. Drafting is a challenge. Trading is a challenge. Tactical decisions on a team are a challenge. It's not easy. But there's a lot of information there with those players. But because that information is there, that doesn't mean that they are better at strategy than someone who specializes in strategy. There's probably information that players have that they might not even have ever articulated or thought of that could be used strategically. So they do have that, but it doesn't make them better at strategy. Wow, I'm really I'm really rambling. Have I been talking for 25 minutes? Wow. Boy. What did I drink this morning? Um, hmm. I guess what I'm saying is Instead of strawmanning analytics, if you want to steelman analytics, if you want to steelman the quote-unquote nerd's perspective, what you'd really say is, where does smart decision-making go wrong when we use all this data? What are the traps? What are the blind spots? And what are the areas that don't incorporate all of our expertise as players? That's what I'd like to know. And if you are a, a listener of this podcast you may remember I actually attempted to do this. I think it's back in episode four or five. It's called The Problem with Analytics. And to me, it's the most important podcast I've done. I understand it's not for everyone, but it's really all about this concept of instead of strawmanning analytics, what if you steelman our entire process of having all this data, making all these decisions with it, uh, all the analysis that goes with it, 
what are the traps? What are the pitfalls? Where did we go wrong? What can we improve? And I would be completely supportive of David West's sentiment in his tweet if he said, quote, non-players who try to tell me never to dribble through my legs shouldn't tell me that. And by the way, there was a time where behind-the-back dribbles or going through your legs was showboating and coaches didn't like it. That was a thing. And maybe a really good example of exactly this point I'm making here, where those coaches were older and they came from a generation where it was just hot-dogging to dribble like that. And when you started to get into the 70s and guys, guys like Earl the Pearl Monroe came along and can handle the ball in different ways and do things with the basketball that they weren't familiar with, especially at the youth level, coaches were suppressing that because they thought it was a bad idea. Of course, strategically, it's quite a good idea if you have a player who can now be more effective penetrating and getting wherever he wants on the court. So there's a meeting of the minds that can happen here and that should be happening in in spirit and probably in smart organizations and universities is happening. But it doesn't help when players are strawmanning an idea to try to knock it down in the public eye. Another example is a recent detail episode from Kobe Bryant. He's talking about Kyrie Irving and says, I think I have the quote here. He says, he says near the end, he says, if I were Kyrie, I would look to be as efficient as Isaiah Thomas was during his back-to-back championships in Detroit. Okay, full stop. This is a great example of this. What Kobe's saying is prescriptive. He's saying you should emulate and pick up things Isaiah Thomas did to try to become more efficient as a player and as a scorer. Only Isaiah Thomas was incredibly inefficient as a scorer. And during his two championship runs, he was actually below league average in efficiency by a decent amount. During the three years Detroit made the finals in a row from 1988 to 1990, he was about minus 4% in efficiency relative to his opponent's strength. And so what you're doing as a player, we, we, we know this. I know I'm preaching to the choir for many of you out there because Michael Jordan's not the most brilliant executive in the world. Former players do not always make great coaches, even when they're high IQ players. I mean, Jason Kidd was an extremely crafty player. I am part of the chorus who is not particularly high on him as a coach. And this is because they're two different areas of expertise. One, coaching, uh, management, strategy, player personnel, assessing value is different than being a successful player, even scouting. So one of the things I do as an analyst is I try to get information from scouts and video guys who have incredible insight that I don't have. They see things in the game that I don't know or they're up to date on what's happening behind the scenes in NBA locker rooms with coaching strategies and things like that. And then you can take that information and apply it to an overall assessment. But, and you see this with assistant coaches when they vote for all defensive team every year, 
just because you know certain things or tendencies or habits or abilities of players doesn't mean you know how valuable it is. What You have an impression, you have an intuition. But it is not the responsibility of an assistant coach during the season, or, or maybe it is of an assistant coach, but of a video coordinator. It's not his responsibility. A scout out on the road scouting prospects or opponents or whatever, it's not their responsibility to figure out the difference in value between on-ball defense and help defense. Those are large-scale problems that require a different kind of expertise, basically. So Kobe telling Kyrie Irving to learn from Isaiah Thomas is essentially a, it's a poor strategic prescription. And it's also interesting because Isaiah, especially during those years, took an incredible number of sort of leaning off-balance mid-range shots. It's one of my largest impressions of him as an offensive player. Kobe, I mean, Kobe definitely does detail from his perspective. So you'll see stuff where he'll say, oh, I, w- I would put a shoulder here, I'd do this. And he kind of forgets that the player might have different skills than him. So you get I enjoy a lot of the play breakdowns. But I was watching the Giannis one recently as well. And one of the first plays, he tells Giannis, oh, you know, if I curl off a screen tighter, I'll be right in there for a 15-range 15 foot mid range jumper. And it's like, yeah, that would work for Kobe, but have you seen Giannis play? Why would Giannis curl tighter for a catch and shoot 15 foot jumper when he's curling wide because he wants to get space for a runway? Because Milwaukee goes five out and he uses that space to attack and drive. So, again, same kind of thing. Uh, Damian Lillard's detail he does. There's a hawk cut pass example that he uses from John Stockton. But again, in the in the context of the strategic conversation and the spirit of this episode, he says, hey, if if Lillard slides down, he can make this pass that John Stockton used to make. That is true. He could do that. But if he slides down, he's basically at or below the three-point line and he would have less space to operate with. And Lillard's whole game, especially when he has an empty wing, is using that space, using the threat of his long-range shot, and you would, in theory, take that away. So, I don't know. I don't know if he's if, if that's just an example of him being particularly busy with the studio and not watching the game today and looking at little differences in the game today or little unique things about players. But, I mean, I'm just I'm just picking on him in this case in the sense that he's a guy putting out opinions that you can actually tangibly look at and say, okay, strategically, this may not make the most sense. Like, he has expertise that very few people have. He was a high IQ player. He studied old players. You can see that in his footwork, uh, in the way he uses his body, the way he used his elbows and shoulders and hips. I mean, it's it's extremely impressive. He's a he's an incredibly underrated off ball player, and so he has all that expertise. But the whole point of this entire thing is there's a difference between having that expertise and blindly applying it, and having a strategic lens to look through and say, hmm, 
this this viable alternative is better. And that's the thing. You need a viable alternative. That's That's at the crux of all these issues. This is what I was referring to at the top of the episode when I said, the difference between a 22-footer and a 24-footer, well, those are two viable alternatives. A 15-footer, when you're set up at the elbow, as the shot clock's winding down, you're not going to have a guy take four steps back to shoot a three, unless it's James Harden. Well, okay, that was a little tongue-in-cheek of me, but let's finish off this episode by talking about Houston and this idea that they can't win with their style anymore. In the case of the Rockets, people are saying Harden will never, uh, Houston will never win with the mid-range game the way they do it. Harden needs to get in the mid-range more, and he dominates the ball too much. You can't win with a guy dominating the ball that much. I mean, LeBron did it, but yes, technically Harden does dominate the ball more. Yes, Houston's offense off the ball is more stagnant than most things we've ever seen. Okay, fair enough. But, first of all, the same people saying Harden will never win because of this strategy, from what I've seen, are also the exact same people criticizing Harden from his Game 5 by saying, Ben, I don't care about your playmaking stuff. I understand that maybe him not taking a shot for six minutes wasn't reflective of his influence on the game. But if you are the best player, you absolutely have to shoot. You have to shoot more. Um, <laughs> okay, that's a total contradiction. I'm not sure how to resolve that. I, I, It's possible those people can resolve it. No one's here to represent that, so I won't knock it down as a as a potential straw man but I will just point out that you have a pretty ostensible contradiction if you're saying at the end of key games in the playoffs the most important thing is to have a money isolation scorer who can force action and take over the game and he has to do that to win and that's why they didn't win and then in the next breath say Houston's style doesn't work because it's too much Harden he needs to pass more. So that's one point on Houston. I'll just let that, I'll just throw that out there. The other point on Houston is back to the mid-range. So it basically became a referendum on Twitter that Houston losing to Golden State shows that this idea of skirting over the mid-range is fundamentally flawed. Fundamentally flawed, doesn't work. Okay. Let's think about that for a second. Houston played one of the greatest teams of all time last year and was ahead by, what, 13 points in the third quarter? They were up 3-2. They lost their second best player, an all-NBA caliber player. And your takeaway from that is they couldn't beat them. I fund- This goes back to the idea of misusing analytics or misusing data dogmatically. That is just, and I'll be dogmatic here in response to this because it's a, it's, a, it's a methodology thing. It's an abstract thing. It's fundamentally wrong to conclude Houston can't beat Golden State based on their performance against Golden State. If you're not familiar with how much variability exists in the game, I talk about it at length in Thinking Basketball, but 
the idea that Houston couldn't beat Golden State. It's no different than having them play one game and after one game saying, see, this proves that Houston can't beat Golden State. And then you say, well, come on, Ben, it's not one game. It's, okay, well, let's go to three games. What if it's a three-game series and Golden State goes up 2-1? Does that prove that Houston can't beat Golden State? It doesn't. By no, it, it, It's not even close. Houston's actually played Golden State a number of times in the last two years, and they play them incredibly well, better than anyone else in the league by far, and they were a, a whisker away from beating them at some point in the last two seasons. But what, what I find most interesting, and I'll conclude with this, is that it doesn't have to be about beating Golden State to win a championship. Because if Golden State weren't there, if Kevin Durant weren't there, if Steph Curry had an injury that kept him out of the entire postseason instead of just some of it, on and on and on, if Draymond Green were injured, who, who would then have won the championship? Who would be the best team? Similarly, is Houston better than any other championship team? I would argue Houston's better than probably half of the championship teams in league history. And it's an easy argument to make. Super easy argument to make. They dominate teams in a way. They won games in a way. And they had a point differential in a way that, I don't know, half the championship teams in the league's history can't touch. And we do see translation from one year to the next, of course. If, if a, a weak team wins a title and a better team comes along the next year, if Tim Duncan's out or Kevin Garnett's out or Michael Jordan retires or whatever, the, a weaker team wins. I'll leave with that. I'll actually leave with a request of all of you still listening, if there's anyone left, if there's anyone left still listening after my elongated rant here today. Um, <laughs> it, whatever platform you are listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, you help me out a lot. You really help the popularity and the success of the podcast. If you go ahead and give it a review and a rating and all that stuff, uh, it just helps it with the algorithm and, and things of this nature. So I would greatly appreciate that. Speaking of appreciative, a lot of new patrons lately. Uh, I have transferred over the patron-only articles from Patreon over to backpicks.com, so you can now access them there through your Patreon. It's a little better interface, a little easier to produce and access. So, as always, a huge thanks to those Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, and I will talk to you all in the next episode. I hope you're having a great day.